Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. One of the things we know as we go through the law of God is that we're to represent God's holy name as his disciples. We understand that we conform to his holy standard as his redeemed. As we go about our days, we understand that we are those who, who truly represent God as salt in this earth, and so when, when we think about representing God, we hear Christ in the Sermon on the Mount tell us that we're not supposed to take an oath at all. So when we hear these words in, in Matthew 5, verse 34, we might wonder how can our catechism tell us that we can take an oath? As we live our lives, we know that if we stand up in court, we're taking an oath. Law enforcement, military, Take an oath. Uh, whenever we make vows in the Lord's presence, marriage, membership, baptism, these sorts of things, we're taking an oath. And so we might wonder, how is it that Christ can so explicitly say in one context, don't take an oath at all? And then we, we have in our catechism a requirement for us to take an oath. So how do we engage in an oath or a vow and how do we know we're not compromising our Christian walk? How do we know we're not compromising the holiness of God's name as we sojourn under the earth? So can we take an oath, first of all, and why only in God's name, basically looking at uh, the catechism? And so can we take an oath? As I've mentioned, some traditions, like at Matthew 5, verse 34, and Christ says we're not to take an oath at all. So we look at that and we say, seems pretty cut and dry. Uh, Christ himself says, no oath. If we're not to take an oath, then that means we shouldn't take an oath. End of story. And so when we think about this, say, okay, this is black and white. But then this sets up a, a scenario and a problem because we say that our catechism is a summation of the word of God. And so if it's a summation drawing the boundaries of our discussions, how is it that our catechism can tell us to take an oath? Does this mean our catechism is out of step with the Word of God? Does this mean we have to revise something in the catechism? I think, obviously, if I'm up here saying this, I'd be violating the form of subscription. So I guess we take this rhetorically, and I kind of let the cat out of the bag. But nevertheless, when we look at what our catechism says, and tells us we take an oath when the government demands it. And so we can say, well, is the catechism teaching us the government overrides the will of God. I mean, that seems pretty dangerous. Some people might look at our catechism and say, oh, see these Reformed people, they're, they're loosey-goosey in the law of God and aren't very principled. Catechism tells us when necessity requires it. So we say, well, how, how can we say that? I mean, if Christ tells us in Matthew 5, verse 34, we should not take an oath at all, seems to me, we shouldn't take an oath at all. So, so what could be so necessary? We go on. 
And the catechism tells us with this oath-taking to promote trustworthiness for a reason, that God's glory and my neighbor's good, or that's the reason, for God's glory and my neighbor's good. So basically it's grounding the, the basis of an oath for the glory of God, which seems contradictory from Matthew 5, verse 34, and my neighbor's good. So we're saying we're just called to be people pleasers then. And then it says that such oath-taking is grounded in God's word. And again, somebody from another tradition looks at Matthew 5, verse 34, and says right there, Christ says, but I say, do not take an oath at all. So how can we reconcile what Christ says in Matthew 5, verse 34, and what our catechism is teaching us in saying that we can take an oath and that this is permissible, that there are certain circumstances when this is allowed and, and actually commanded and honorable. And so let's look at Matthew 23 and see what Christ is teaching here. As I mentioned, context, verse 16. As Christ starts here, he refers to the leaders as blind guides. Uh, this is probably not a sermon you uh, want to preach if you want to influence people or stay employed for very long. Uh, Christ is quite forceful when we put this in the context. He's not really um, being what we could say very politically correct. I mean, he's basically telling the Pharisees exactly what he thinks of them. So this language of a blind guides and calling them hypocrites, this, this, is pretty, this is pretty harsh. So on the one hand, he's saying that, that they're leading people, but, but they're blind. And so this blindness, you know, this is something we can understand. We, we can't see. So it's this absurd picture. How can you lead people when you can't see? Calling them hypocrites is saying that they're actually play actors. Uh, when, when he calls them this, he's saying that you're playing a part, but you don't embrace the substance of the Word of God. Now it's pretty severe when you think about Christ being the incarnate Word, the action of God, speaking the words of God. And so it's not just a prophet like we have with Moses where the Lord puts his words in his mouth. This is actually God himself sharing his opinion of the leadership of Israel, which tells us this isn't just an opinion. I mean, this is reality. This is a fact. Uh, this is a pretty harsh thing to say. And so when, when Christ says this, he tells them something else, that they, they love the title, they love being called rabbi, they love being called father. So this should start tipping us off about how we interpret the words of Christ, not that we wiggle out from their authority. But we have Paul saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy that Paul is his father of the faith. So is Paul, an ex-Pharisee, mind you, contradicting the word of God and contradicting the words of Christ? I mean, we might think that if we just take this at a very superficial, quick reading, say, well, the apostle Paul is out of line, and we're out of line because clearly Christ says don't take an oath at all. So what do we do with this? Well, this is a problem when we superficially look at the text. You see, Christ is talking about the leadership and not necessarily in terms of Christian affection, calling attention to mentoring, right? I mean, that's basically what Paul's saying to Timothy. I, I mentored you. It's not Paul puffing himself up and saying, I am the mentor or the father of the church. 
But as Paul calling to Timothy, listen, you know, in terms of our relationship, think about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul's farewell, there's a close tie. They did missionary journeys. Paul's writing his letter to them. And it's an important letter. It's an important history for the church because you're making a transition from the apostolic age with an open canon. The Lord gives revelation to the apostles to a closed canon where we take the words of the apostles and the prophets and we expound them, we preach them, we, we look at what they're saying, and, and, and we preach them from the pulpit. And so Paul's not puffing himself up. That's what Christ is addressing. That the Pharisees, the scribes, they like the prestige of the office. They like the prestige of what they're doing. But they're not doing this to honor the Lord. And so when they're doing this for their own significance, he's saying that they're doing some damage. Uh, one might say, well, what's the problem if they call themselves father and they're uh, bringing these people into the faith and, and they're teaching morality? Well, the problem is they're not teaching morality and how we live our lives before the face of God. They're not teaching the proselytes to truly live their lives before Christ. And so this is why Christ says, basically, you travel around the world to make a single disciple. And why? So they can call you father? So they can be significant? And then you make them twice a child of hell, basically twice a, a recipient of hell than you yourselves. I mean, that's, ooh, that's a pretty stern thing to say to an individual. Uh, Christ looks you in the eye and says that. That's certainly something to start contemplating. But the reality is, why is he saying that? I mean, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. He's saying that because they're teaching the disciples to outdo the Father. So if the Father's doing this for their own prestige, right, as the Pharisees placing themselves as a spiritual father of these individuals, and seems to be demanding that they call them or call the, the Pharisees a spiritual father, and then demanding that they bring forth the same sort of morality, Christ is saying this is all superficial. None of it's done for the glory of God. This is why it's important when he cites Micah 6. They're not doing this in terms of how they live their lives before the face of the living God as the Lord's redeemed. So when Christ is calling this to our attention, he's saying basically you've missed the substance of the gospel. You're not seeing the Messiah. You're not seeing the means of redemption. You're calling attention away from the means of redemption. So we say, okay, so we've, we've, set, a, we've set sort of the context, uh, but what's the, what's the problem? I mean, what's the problem with the oath? We still haven't gotten to the fundamental issue. Well, what Christ is now talking about is a specific issue in terms of what they're teaching people. And this is where it's a problem with their own creativity. But the scribes and, and Pharisees in verse uh, 22 uh, Christ is saying what the real standard is. The real standard is we swear the oath or we swear in the name of the Lord. But what are they doing? Well, they're saying, well, you make an oath by the gold of the temple, not really that authoritative, but you start swearing by the things and the substance of the altar, and that's an oath that's binding. And so you end up getting this, this big book of all these technicalities as to which oath is binding, which oath is not binding. And at the end of the day, I've used this analogy before, but it's really like a, a couple of children on the playground making up rules to a game and then all of a sudden saying, well, the rules aren't really binding because 
when we agreed upon them, I had my fingers crossed behind my back, and so therefore you can't hold me to these rules. That's what Christ is addressing. That's the fundamental problem. They're coming up with all these technicalities, all these ins and outs of the oath, and not understanding the substance of the oath. So it's important to note here, superficially, that Christ never says we cannot make an oath. That's not what he's saying here. We'll get to Matthew 5.34 in a moment. But right here, he never says a problem is making an oath. Clearly, as we go on in verse 22, he lays out the proper uh, context for an oath. We swear by the name of God. The point that Christ is making is that they're swearing these oaths in these little technicalities. And so Christ is saying, you're trying to get out of the substance of your oath, you're being deceptive, and you're not understanding the God who lives in the temple. You're acting as if you can swear by the temple and act as if God's not really there or, or God's distant or abstracted from you. And so Christ is saying this technicality is not something that really flies. It's not something that Moses has said. You know, they want to sit in the seat of Moses. They want to expound Moses. And Christ is saying, but this is not what Moses taught. This is not taught in the Old Testament. This has not been taught by me. And so this is not an appropriate way to make an oath. So the declaration is, yes, we, by implication here already, we're seeing Christ doesn't have a problem with making an oath. That's not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is when we try and do these technicalities of getting out of the requirements of the law by our own requirements, by our own creativity. That's what Christ is addressing. So right here we say, okay, Christ does not have a problem with us making an oath. You understand that? Verse 22 lays out the formula. So why do we swear this oath then exclusively in the Lord's name? Well, when you get to the catechism's point, question answer 101 tells us, yeah, we can make an oath. And uh, 101 tells us that, that it's allowed. 102, what is it going on to say? What is the true oath? Well, the true oath is calling upon the name of God. So we want to make sure we're not invoking another God or, or another being. We're calling upon the name of the true God. We also know that this, it is God who can peer into the heart. So we understand who God is. And so when we're swearing the oath in the name of God, God knows what's going on inside of us. This is why we swear in his name. Going on, the catechism tells us no one else is worthy. So if we swear an oath in someone else's name or in some other God's name, we're taking that God and elevating that God to the same status of the true God. And so the catechism is saying we, we don't want to do this. This is problematic. It's pure idolatry to do such a thing as putting another God in the place of the true God. There's no other being that is like God who can judge in the same way. And so question and answer 102 wants us to understand that this does honor God. And we're honoring him appropriately as a true judge, the true God who rules over all. So if we have to swear an oath, this is where our conscience is bound. So we're, we're in a situation in the government, we have to swear an oath. We don't have an option to swear in another book or to swear before another God. Our conscience is bound that we only swear in the name of the true God. Otherwise, that oath is not true and it is not binding. 
and we are sinning because we're elevating another being and another thing in the place of God. So now going on, how do we take Matthew 5, verse 34, in light of Matthew 23? Because clearly, as I mentioned, uh, if you talk to people from other traditions, Mennonites especially, they'll tell you we are not to take an oath. This is not something we do. So what, what do we do with this? Well, when we look at Matthew uh, 23, clearly we've seen how Christ is interacting uh, with the Pharisees and the scribes. And what they're basically doing is trying to find the technicality of getting out of the oath. That's what they're doing. Doing a theology, this oath is binding, this oath is not binding. And so really what we're doing is playing games. And so the issue that Christ is laying out, as he says, they like to be teachers of Moses. Moses teaches us about oaths. Leviticus 19, verse 12. Moses is the one who reminds us that God is the one who is the true and only God. So if we have to swear an oath, we swear it only in the Lord's name. So there is a, a precedent for this going on. What does Christ say? Heaven is the throne of God. So he's saying, understand, if you start saying, well, I'm just swearing by the throne, or I'm swearing by the seat in the temple, whatever technicality, he's saying you're swearing by God. He sits upon the throne. He presides in heaven. So you swear by the stars, you swear by the sky. God's enthroned in heaven. Earth is his footstool. So what are we, what are we reminded of? Jerusalem, city of the king, our head, we cannot change a single thing. So Matthew 23 is reminding us we're not to play games. Matthew 5, as Christ goes on and as Christ puts us in the context, someone may say, well, Christ says literally not to, ver not to make an oath at all. So what does Christ say in Matthew 5? Well, Christ goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we're going to take this literally without any hyperbole, uh, when we put this into context, what does he say in Matthew 5, verse 29 and 30? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. The right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. So is Christ saying, if we literally take this, that it's okay to steal with our left hand? Is it okay to sin with our left hand? Because it's just our left hand. It's the right hand that's the problem. Well, if we want to take this literally... I guess we could say that, but that's not the intention behind this. Why is Christ saying right eye, right hand? Well, normally in terms of how we think of humanity, it's our right hand that guides us, right? We speak of the right hand man, the individual that we trust. Christ seated on the right hand of God, speaking of his exaltation. It's a place of trustworthiness. The individual that you know is going to be trustworthy. So your right hand it's a place of guidance. It's a place of power. It's a place where you move and orient yourself. Your right eye is where you would see the right course of action. So Christ isn't just saying, well, as long as you sin on your left side, it doesn't really count. It's only the right side sins that really count. That's not Christ's point. His point is to make sure that we are oriented properly to the kingdom. And so we we have to take this in terms of, of the bigger picture and the intentions of Christ. This becomes even more problematic if we're really going to say 
that Matthew 5 is teaching us under no circumstances we can take an oath. And Christ stands before the high priest in Matthew 26, verse 63. The high priest says to him, I adjure you. Basically, I oath you. It is a, it's not a proper English. The English people can crucify me for that. But basically, it's I oath you. I'm placing you under an oath. So this means that the moment you answer this question or this comment, you're answering it in the name of God. You're, you're answering it in the context of an oath. So you have two options. You stay silent, and maybe you can say, whoa, this is beyond my conscience. I cannot do this in the name of God. I cannot take an oath, right? Well, that's one option. The other option is you answer. Well, Christ himself answers. And as Jesus answers, he's placing himself under an oath. So Jesus himself would be a hypocrite if we're truly going to take Matthew 5, verse 34, and say we should never take an oath. Obviously, we don't want to say our Lord is a hypocrite uh, because then we're in a very serious predicament uh, because it means that Christ did not perfectly obey the law of God. Well, there's another scenario. We think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, or 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23. The Apostle Paul swears an oath that he had good reason not to come to Corinth. So there he's swearing an oath as an apostle. But we have another scenario, just one more example from Scripture. What about Hebrews 6, verse 13? Where God, when he makes his covenant, he has no one else to swear by, so he swears by himself. In other words, God takes an oath that this will, in fact, take place. We think even in Moses, not only where he tells us to take an oath in the name of God, but we think of Leviticus 5, where there's a, the way of handling a hasty oath. So if we put ourselves in a situation where we may have hastily run into an oath, uh, maybe we shouldn't have done it for whatever reason, Leviticus 5 gives a provision for how one can atone or pay uh, for that hasty sin. So in other words, it's not that making oaths is a problem. Making a false oath, that's a problem, and there is a provision for that. So now... We, we take this data, we take this information, we say, okay, we still got to deal with Matthew 5, verse 34. What, what do we do with this text? We've kind of skirted around the issue. Well, we have to understand who God is. And if God is the one who, uh, if Christ has made an oath and God has sworn by himself, the apostle swears by himself and doesn't repent, we can say, well, maybe Matthew 5, verse 34 doesn't belong in Scripture. Well, we'd have to have some pretty severe warrant for that, wouldn't we, if we're going to make that claim? Uh, there's nothing within the text that would communicate that it's compromised in any way. So, so that's really not an option. We can't look at Matthew 5, verse 34, and just be dismissive and say, well, that's, that doesn't belong in Scripture. Christ never really said that. He did say it. We, we have it in the inspired word. Uh, we, we have to deal with it. We have to deal with that information. But when we look at this, and we understand this verse correctly, what is Christ teaching us? Well, when Christ is interacting uh, with the Pharisees, taking Matthew 23 and Matthew 5 and reconciling those, and he's interacting with them, the point is we live our lives in the presence 
of God. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 23. Important points that Christ is making. We live our lives in the presence and before the face of God. We are redeemed in Christ. We live out that redemption out of gratitude as we walk by faith in the power of the Spirit. But going on then, Christ is warning the Pharisees about these technicalities. Now, visiting this blind guide thing again, that's an important concept because it's not just that they can't see. You see, if, if, if the, the qualification for a Pharisee is you have to be blind, that wouldn't fit in their theology. Because blindness, when we hear even in John 9, what do the disciples say to Christ? Hey, Lord, who's the one who sinned, referring to the blind man? Was it this man or his parents? In other words, there's no category in their theology for there's a common curse. Things happen that we just humanly can't explain. We, we don't know. We, we don't know why this individual is blind. God hasn't told us. It's a common curse. These things happen. And that's kind of how we look at it. It's a consequence of the fall. And so for the, even the disciples of Christ, that's not their thinking. Their thinking is, this man's blind, somebody sinned, somebody is out of line. So you have to understand, when Christ calls these men blind guides, it's sort of a, a double prong. On the one hand, he's saying, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. So there's the most obvious application of this. But the other way of what Christ is saying is you're not even qualified to be a leader because you're blind. And on your own system, if you're blind, you've sinned or someone has sinned. Therefore, you shouldn't be in this position. And so we, we can't minimize the significance of that. Christ also going on in terms of the substance of the kingdom. This is what Christ wants us to do. Uh, going on, Matthew 5, verse 23. What are we to do? Well, to promote justice and mercy and faithfulness, uh, quoting from Micah 6. And so he's, he's getting at what, what does the Lord want as a substance? He wants us. He wants us from our heart to consciously want to please him. So when we're taking these oaths, we want to do it to please his name. But when we think about their call to be blind fools, he wants them to understand they're lacking uh, the true discernment. So now when we look at Matthew 5, verse 34, and as Christ uh, re refers to this and talks about this, Christ also, in this passage, is making an echo back to it. Do not take an oath either by heaven or by earth. So what Christ is saying is don't just, it's not just a blanket statement, don't take an oath. When we put Matthew 5, verse 34 in its context, we take the hyperbole, the, the exaggeration of the Sermon on the Mount. We already talked about the cutting out the eye, cutting off the hand. But there's no contradiction between these two passages. Christ is simply calling attention in Matthew 5 in a summary fashion as to what's going on, swearing by heaven, swearing by earth. Here in Matthew 23, we're finding more of the technicalities of the gold of the temple or the altar. And so it seems Christ is interacting uh, with their tradition more specifically in what they have allowed. And so it's important if someone comes to you, takes Matthew 5, verse 34, and says, you're in a problematic tradition. You allow for oaths. Christ clearly says you shall not take an oath. Say, what does the rest of that verse say? Either by heaven or by earth, right? That's what Christ says there. And then we say, okay, what about Matthew 
uh, 23. What does Christ say there? He goes through and expounds the problem. So if we're going to take the Sermon on the Mount with such literalism and say that this is literally how we understand it, and say, well, if you cut off your right arm or your right hand, if you cut out your right eye, uh, have you ever sinned on the right side? And do we just say left side sins are permissible? Well, of course we would say that's completely absurd, and that's not what Christ is saying. So we have to get to the context and the intention of the text. We don't want to have this superficial read of the text. And so what Christ is reminding us in terms of our oath is simply what our catechism is teaching. We want to take an oath in the name of God. We don't want to find a technicality. We don't want to be like the children playing the game in the playground, saying, well, it doesn't count. My fingers were crossed behind my back. That's basically what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. And Christ is telling them, you're basically playing kids' games in the presence of God, and this is a dangerous game to play, not something we want to do. And so in conclusion then, is it okay to take an oath? Is it permissible to engage in taking vows? Or are we compromising the Lord's holiness? Well, it's important to understand how we do this. We don't want to do this hastily. We want to live our lives before the face of God. We want to live our lives as those who are joined to Christ, knowing that Christ is the source of our redemption. And as he's our source of redemption, and again, I love how our catechism puts it, and puts it so clearly that we live our lives out of gratitude. We're not adding to the work of Christ. We're bringing forth the fruits of the faith. And so as we're cultivating the fruits of the faith, what do we want to do? Well, we want to conduct ourselves before the face of God as a people where we consciously understand we represent his name. Struggle, struggle to conform. But what Christ is ultimately laying out, what does he want? He wants us to truly understand justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, it's that commitment to the goodness of God, desiring to live it out, not so we can attain and not so we can become, but because of who we are. We are those who are redeemed and set apart in Christ. And as we are redeemed and set apart in Christ, we do this out of gratitude, knowing that Christ has paid the price, Christ has secured us, that's the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the context of Matthew 23. They're not seeing their need for a Redeemer. Let us then be a people who are conscious that we need a Redeemer. Let us be a people who truly desire the Lord's justice, His mercy, and desire to be faithful to Him, doing so out of gratitude because we serve the Most High God who has redeemed and set us apart unto him. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. 
Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.